Okay, recording. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Transplant Infectious Disease Podcast. Today, our guest is Peter Chin Hong. He is professor of medicine at a small institution out west. Well, actually, a pretty big one, UCSF, where he's also associate dean for regional campuses. In addition to all that, if that wasn't enough, he's also the leader of the immunocompromised host section for infectious disease at UCSF. Welcome. Thanks so much. It's so awesome being on, uh, even though I'm on the other side of the country. So uh, I have not been out to the West Coast for a little bit, but I think we're going to have some conferences coming up there. The American College of Physicians Conference is in San Diego, a little bit to the south of you. And I guess IDSA uh, or ID Week is going to be in Boston, but following the typical rotation, I guess it'll be in California before too long. Yeah, it'll give us some time to like, you know, shine up some of the restaurants. I know people come to the West Coast for a lot of other things apart from meeting their ID colleagues. Although uh, very esteemed as they are, you know, the call of the wild is is very compelling. Well, I haven't been to uh, Chinatown in San Francisco for a few years, so I definitely uh, would like to make a pilgrimage there for uh, some of the, the, the great places. And years ago, uh, I had lunch at a place that specialized in garlic. It wasn't a Chinese restaurant, but it was... Um, in uh is it south beach south yeah in the north beach area north beach uh, and uh it's called the stinking rose you can get garlic everything there's always room and space for even more garlic and if you really wanted to come back for the garlic festival that's a, a sight to behold as well all right i think we'll get the uh the podcast to take a road trip go on the road eat some good meals and interview people in person but until then we're doing this by distance. So tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in transplant infectious disease. Yeah, so I'm from the Caribbean, from Trinidad and Tobago, the home of the steel band Calypso and Limbo. It's the most southerly isle in the Caribbean chain. And yeah, it's probably the furthest thing away from transplant that you can think about. So I guess my journey was one of gradual realization. And this was a place that I was excited about. I ended up going to the East Coast to Brown for college and medical school. Was really excited initially by snow, made a few snow angels in the first <laughs> winter, but then it got really old. And even though I still wore flip-flops, I thought that the best place to wear flip-flops is in a place that was just a little bit warmer. Nice. Although you know, I came to San Francisco, visited my best friend from high school who was here, and I really fell in love with the city. I fell in love with the social activism and with, with UCSF because, you know, a lot of the things that they stood for uh, were really uh, ranged a gamut from basic science to, to taking care of the community. And that sort of like multiple lenses really resonated with me to cut the sh- story short, during until medicine residency, the people who excited me the most were ID folks. And of course, my first, I guess, foray into the whole immunocompromised host was really through HIV initially. And then as I was sort of minding my own business, thinking I would do HIV during fellowship, I saw these crazy cases of strange fungi in transplant patients. And I thought, wow, this was a population I hadn't really thought a lot about. And I didn't even know there was a role for ID in it. At that point, it was emerging. 
And some of my best teachers were really in the care of immune compromised hosts. And like HIV, I loved it because there were people all around the table. There were issues that weren't on the radar of a lot of people in other parts of medicine and certainly even ID at the time. And because I'm always for the underdog, I, I really decided that transplant was the place for me. And I found out over time that it really allowed me to take a lot of the lenses, a lot of the things that were interesting to me in my life from public health, when you think about where that donor comes from in terms of preventing donor-derived infections, mm -hmm. all the way to the most basic of biology and immunology, to the ama amazing clinical medicine where you have to integrate art of medicine into clinical care, and to activism and community engagement because of working with the OPOs and, you know, the way that they really try to serve their community the best. So it really took a lot of different parts of me and I was really grateful to it. And of course, the community who would think that there would be such an amazing group of people in transplant ID, not only ID folks, but, you know, the surgeons and the coordinators and the nurses, hepatologists, nephrologists, you name it. So I had a little bit of a uh, an encounter with some folks from UCSF, Peter Stock and Michelle Rowland, years ago when uh, I was first starting in transplant infectious disease because Michelle Rowland had this idea of doing transplants in people that had HIV and it was right person, right time. And thinking about where we are now, it, it's mind-blowing. It is mind-blowing. And I guess that, you know, early study and multi-center study looking at whether or not you could transplant HIV-infected individuals was really mind-blowing at the time. If you think about using a scarce organ, the sort of meaning of HIV and the idea that uh, HIV patients, maybe they won't live that long, so what's the point of using these scarce organs? It really took some, some hood spots, some like real balls to really say, hey, people, this is the reason why I think we should study this. This is the reason why I think we can really add productive quality of life years to these individuals. Uh, you know, now that ART was really coming into, into its adolescence or adulthood at the time. And it really spoke to that environment where there was no closed door. And it took a population like transplant to really move that forward. And it really speaks to that idea that, you know, you always look to raise up that underdog and speaks to the commitment that's in, in, in the field that we work in. No, that's, it's really, uh, the journey has been uh, absolutely amazing and moving to see the opportunity for people to have life. There, there's one person who uh, tweeted that uh, she had been uh, at a very young, as an infant, she wasn't born with HIV, as an infant, she had HIV, and then she donated her organ to help somebody's life. And she said that it, it was the transformation from the, the concept that something in her body could cause death and injury to people to now something in her body can cause, can bring life to people. Yes, definitely. I, I mean, I think metaphorically speaking, uh, it means so much, not just to, you know, us as clinicians and to the recipient itself, but to the whole community. Mm -hmm. to the individuals who can donate organs to the HIV community. Again, it sounds kind of almost no-brainer right now when we're sitting in 2022, 
But back then when Peter Stock and Michelle Rowland got together and engaged with people around the country to say, hey, let's ask this question. We think it will work. It sounds like a leap, but it means a lot and it makes sense. So we should just do it and do it. They did. I, I actually just had spend a, a weekend with Michelle Rowland. She's still oh, wow. active clinically, but she's moved away from UCSF <clears throat> now after working for the CDC and Africa and, and now it's come back to do more clinical medicine. So yeah, we were sitting around, I don't know, by the Sierras, just eating some farmer's market produce and deciding if persimmon should go in the salad or not. But, you know, it was, it was really remarkable to come full circle again, because I also met Rochelle Roland early in my training, even before I became a resident and wow. she really stuck with me all this year. And I've seen her career evolve. Uh, over time, it really gives us, you know, an example of the fact that you don't really have to stick into one career for the entire time you're in academic medicine. I think there are doors not yet opened and you just open them like with HIV patients and transplant ID, but also in the bigger field of medicine. So speaking of the bigger field of medicine and your title is now help me with this. It's Dean of Regional Campuses. Yeah. So UCSF has two regional campuses right now, and we're establishing a third. So uh, we have a joint program with this, with UC Berkeley, mm-hmm. with the School of Public Health. And we also have a campus at UCSF Fresno. So this new campus would build on the idea that we need to, you know, build the workforce of physicians in the Central Valley. And many people don't know this, but the Central Valley has some of the worst outcomes, the largest physician shortage in the country, comparable to Appalachia and the U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, but it's kind of fallen under the radar. It's in California. And even though they produce so much of the food of the country in terms of agricultural produce, and they've exploded with population, they just don't have enough physicians. It's not uncommon for people to wait a year or more to see specialty care. And wow. so what we're trying to do is really build a program, a new program there that will take high school students in a combined program, undergrad to medical school. They'll get a UCSF School of Medicine degree. And maybe in about 20 years, they'll become their own medical school after we've given them that jump start. So that's kind of my role is really primarily in this new program, as well as making sure the other regional campuses are aligned with our accreditation because the accreditation of UCSF School of Medicine is everybody's accreditation. And, you know, we're only as strong as our weakest link. So everybody has to really be at a high enough standard. But, you know, at the end of the day, what it is, is really some of the same things that give me joy and transplant ID. It's thinking about systems, it's solving problems, doing root cause analysis, designing things like in clinical research, and ultimately making friends with a whole lot of people. And, and as ID folks, it, it, it's something that we do normally. You know, the mm-hmm. three A's of a good ID consultant are not only ability, but availability and affability. So mm-hmm. I think that. Those three things also go a long way in other aspects of medicine as well. 
No, it makes me think years ago when I was a kid, there was an activist in uh, Gdansk, Poland, Lech Walesa, and he was one of the people that was helpful in uh, in this in creating the solidarity movement and standing up to the uh, the Soviet Union. And one of the reasons I had heard that he was successful was because he was an electrician. What that meant is that he was in different parts of the uh, industrial plant as an electrician so that he, like an infectious disease doctor, he didn't just spend time with one group of people, but he was, you know, with the equivalent of with surgeons, with pharmacists, with internists. So uh, maybe uh, it's smart that they chose you, an infectious disease doctor, uh, with the three A's to be able to do that. No, definitely. I feel very honored to get this position. It kind of landed on me in the middle of COVID. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of like, you could imagine how much adjustment and trauma that was. But luckily, you know, my boss in that particular context uh, was really understanding. And, you know, now the work is really picking up there as, as you know, we've become more comfortable with, with COVID. But yes, I mean, I think to the audience members, infectious disease doctors are really, really prized. And when you look around the landscape of American medicine, they are some of the best educators because we think in systems, we advocate and, you know, we're socially minded, even though we're scientifically based. And at the end of the day, we're nice people and we like to have a good time too. Mm-hmm. Except uh, when it comes time to commenting on uh, vacations, then we can always think about, well, that mosquito is carrying this thing. and But as long as we can keep that under wraps, we're good. I know. I think a lot of ID people were disappointed in COVID because when we do an ID history now, it's kind of boring. You know, everybody was sheltering in place for the last two years. Yeah. So there's no like trips to the Gambia or Botswana or the, you know, uh, you know, drinking contaminated water in, in some other far off land. But it's kind of like, I just didn't do anything and I just stayed at home two days. And we're trying to get that, that history of that, you know, rabbit dog or sharing that toothbrush with your pet canary or something. But, you know, not as much coming out in my last weekend attending, unfortunately. No, but when I was reviewing your publications, I saw that you had not one, but two publications on Bailey Ascaris. How did you get involved in that? Yeah, so that was really because, you know, we have a a large, you know, feral community of animals in the Bay Area and in Northern California in general. So our patients get exposed to a lot of different wildlife and in unusual ways. And so it's, I guess we're used to kind of asking weird questions like, where did you eat lunch? And did you wash your hands after? And I remember this particular patient, you know, coming in with a very ill-defined systemic disease, fevers, and like a typical ID doc, found finds out that he was a construction worker in a facility where there are a lot of raccoons and there was a lot of raccoon poop and he didn't wash his hands before he he ate his lunch so i guess the moral of the story is like id docs always say don't forget to wash your hands it kind of goes for everything right even rsv these days no and and washing hand hygiene uh i think people have been were very good with that for the past few years but hopefully uh it won't start deteriorating now that the pandemic is starting to uh to fade away at least for most people if not for our immunocompromised people which brings me to a, uh, a, a, this is a hypothetical case. This is not based on any one individual, but it's sort of a uh, composite case. And uh, it's something that we're all thinking about these days. And I'm curious as to uh, not just your approach, but what you've seen your colleagues do. So um, 
a uh, 50 something year old man with history of kidney transplant has received multiple vaccinations, but uh, has actually had antibodies checked, although that's not mandatory, but has had them checked and, and is always flat, no response to the antibodies. Now it has symptoms that are um, consistent with COVID, tests positive for COVID, and wants to know what to do. They're on tacrolimus, so the ritonavir-based regimen of Paxlovid is challenging. I'll start with, do you use Paxlovid in your transplant patients? Yes, we definitely use Paxlovid. We've had a little bit of bumpy sort of obstacles with you know, trying to figure out the right regimen, but we do have a regimen of stopping the calcineurin inhibitor after, you know, starting the Paxlovid and then, you know, stopping it. I wouldn't bore you with all the details in the recipe and then restarting it after the Paxlovid stopped a couple of days later. Mm -hmm. uh, we've learned the hard way, even though we, you know, worked with our skilled pharmacists very uh, carefully, but there have been a, maybe a couple of cases where people came in with tacrolimus toxicity. One of the most famous ones was one where there wasn't a lot of a, a, wasn't any adjustment done where, you know, somebody in an outside facility who didn't really know the family, mm -hmm. the patient's medical history started Paxlovid. Patient came in with, you know, unbelievable tacrolimus toxicity, uh, almost renal failure, you know, tremors, neurologic sequelae, the whole works. We had to actually give him rifampin to sort of like eat up that, you know. Oh, wow that that drug and eventually the patient recovered well and we kind of again have modified the protocol where we feel very comfortable but you know it comes down to an old-fashioned skill set which is not the protocol or the drugs which is a communication and i think that's another place where you know i've noticed that folks are really amazing at which is trying to be the glue that brings all these people together yeah but sometimes even it's in a fractured American healthcare system, it's really tough to have the one hand talk to the other hand. So th that happened in that particular case. But to answer the question, yes, we, we feel generally comfortable with Paxlovid in, in uh, calcineurin inhibitors. But of course, some patients, particularly recently with all the press of COVID rebound, uh, mm -hmm. patients sometimes don't want to take Paxlovid. Mm -hmm. uh, we look at alternatives as well. So one of the alternatives that we've been using here is in our center, we've not been using Paxlovid in our transplant patients because of uh, a theoretical concern and then also some bad experiences. And, and I think it is one of those things that, that there's no right answer. They're probably just all wrong answers, but there's no, there's no right answer, but, but we've not, we've, we've gone to monoclonals as our go-to for our patients that cannot take Paxlovid and now we're seeing that there's about nationwide about 25% or higher resistance to beptilogamab. So we're trying to come up with our next approach, which might be um, several days of remdesivir. Have you done that? I think UCLA does that. Yes, we we definitely, you know, my after Paxlovid, my next go to is typically remdesivir for three days for early disease. Mm -hmm. um, I've had a really good experience with it. I mean, it is a drag. More than 50% of patients live more than three hours away for transplant. Mm -hmm. So it is a drag to give everyone that treatment option these days. But we do try to, to give it as much as possible. I mean, I am, uh, I like the early treatment data for remdesivir. Also, it's a more forgiving time frame, seven days instead of five days for mm -hmm. Paxlovid. So we, we have a little bit more room. But yes, I am also very dismayed and disappointed 
about the rise of the new, you know, monoclonal antibody resistant sure. sublineages like BQ1, BQ1.1. I mean, it was a great intervention in the few times that I did use monoclonal antibodies for treatment. Uh, it works like, like wonders. I mean, very, very fast. Patients usually feel better very quickly, even a, a sick transplant patient. And now we're, we've lost that. I don't feel comfortable using those interventions, the monoclonals anymore, given, you know, in California, we're also, you know, above 30% in BQ1, BQ1.1. And then, you know, you have things like BF7, which has partial resistance and who knows what's going to happen with XBB as well. Yeah, this, it's sort of like the old days of HIV, where we used to know all these mutations. Now that, that we have super powerful HIV drugs, there, there's fewer mutations to keep track of because the patients seem to be doing well. I guess that's the reason why the, you know, even though the WHO tried to come up with the Greek system, it kind of all fell flat with Omicron. I think they have to come up with another system yeah. because who can remember these things? And so I always just think of them as, grandchildren of Omicron or, or children of BA5. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, that, that's smart. In terms of um, some other options, molnupiravir, we've not been using it here because there's a sense that it's maybe not as strong. And I've had this fantasy of maybe somebody doing a, a double shot, maybe uh, one shot of remdesivir and one shot of molnupiravir and see if, if that would work. But I guess a clinical trial would be necessary. Yeah, no, I think I always thought about that too, Shmel. I mean, I think that we we're so used to using multiple targets and so many other areas of ID and transplant ID. It seems weird that, and now we have different antiviral options available working in very, very different targets. It makes sense as proof of concept that, you know, they would work, they wouldn't be canceling each other out, but rather work together and potentially synergistically. So yeah, maybe you can change that 30% efficacy with molnupiravir into something much more gleaming mm-hmm. when you add uh, maybe even a shorter course of remdesivir. So you wouldn't yeah. have to have that patient, you know, hooked up to an IV for three consecutive days. No, that, that's a big challenge is the three days. Um, and, and then the the last option that in area that's near and dear to my heart is the uh, convalescent plasma, which I think we can take an hour and a half talking about it. So we won't, but it, it, it's like in um, Monty Python, I'm not quite dead yet. So there is a there is a a role for it, but it might be too too subtle to discuss as part of many other things. Yeah, no, definitely. I've been a big fan of convalescent plasma from the beginning. Um, you know, I was one of the people called it liquid gold. I mean, conceptually, it makes a lot of sense, and it's the gift that keeps on giving, right? Like as the variants evolve, the population, you know, antibodies are going to reflect what's in the community. And yeah, sure, you know, in the general population doesn't seem to really work quite as well as we'd like, but I think uh, most people rela- recognize that in the immune compromised individuals, a high titer contemporary monoclonal, I mean, a contemporary convalescent plasma would probably potentially give a lot of benefits to the patient. Yeah. And, and the way I look at it is, is that it's good to have multiple options, particularly in a uh, fast-moving situation and with immunocompromised patients, because you never know when uh, you'll need an option when uh, a patient can't tolerate or is not available the other drugs. And I think for areas that are resource-limited, where they just don't have access to some of these more expensive drugs, then uh, it's good having that other option uh, that can be generated through blood banks. 
So now switching gears a little bit, you wrote an article that I found fascinating, which was about the role of endowed chairs. So tell us about that. Yeah, so it it really started off from an investment uh, at UCSF in uh, prizing educators. And again, many transplant ID doctors, many infectious disease doctors are really, really good at medical education, and they are really sought after and fantastic. So the way that you prize a particular group is to think about supporting that group. And, you know, there was an endowment that UCSF created where they would give education chairs to people who can apply for them with a project, just like you would apply for grants. And every year you'd get a certain amount of money that you can use at your own discretion. Um, half would come from the division and department, half would come from this endowment. So it was matched so that your boss has skin, skin in the game, so to speak. And the other kind of cool concept about it is that it wasn't like once as a, thought about as a reward, like, oh, look at this person almost going to get a Nobel prize. So I'm going to give him a endowed chair to honor him. It was a very different way of thinking about endowed chairs, which was a developmental tool. So in that case, it was time limited. So, mm-hmm. you know, in my, in that particular one I got, which was for innovation and education. I I had a five-year term and I could apply for another five years, but I I, I gave it about the five years so somebody could, else can get it uh, mm-hmm. sooner. And you kind of pass it around so you build up uh, that population. And there have been quite a few uh, infectious disease folks uh, at UCSF who, who've gotten them over the years. And again, it's been really, really helpful to give that that extra money for support of things related to education. And one would say that in ID, almost everything we do kind of comes down to education in some way or something that we we really enjoy and prize. So that's kind of, so the paper was really looking at an analysis of the people who got it and what it meant to them and in a, a qualitative way and using interviews in a very, very systematic and rigorous way and, and showed really all of these things that that we talked about in terms of using chairs not as a reward, but the income from that as a developmental way, almost in the same way as a K grant uh, for mm-hmm. clinical research. And um, I think it also gives prestige to this whole, the whole area of medical education, because if you were a holder of one of these things, you know, you would have had to have taught and have passion for this particular area as well. So I hope that it will inspire other institutions to do it, to help build up that community of, of educators. And again, many, many people in infectious disease are, are interested in, in medical education. No, that's fantastic. And I, I, I also hope that it will inspire people because uh, it, medical education is something that is um, often underfunded. It, it, uh, I think people will be, uh, people that listen to this will probably know, but people outside of medicine are surprised that we get nothing for teaching. Our salaries generally supported by other activities and changing that paradigm with something like this is just so important. No, it's so critical. It's so important. And again, like other aspects of ID, you know, I think we do so many things that are not funded. Um, mm-hmm. and if you want to, again, get paid for or get reimbursed for what, how you actually authentically spend your time because so much of us do teaching all the time. 
Uh, it is really a, a step towards that direction. And at the end of the day, the reason why we want to do all that, apart from being fair, is that we really want to have that work-life balance so that the time you put in in your work is remunerated appropriately and fairly so that you could have time to go eat at Stinking Rosen, eat garlic ice cream, or go on a hike or eat dim sum for breakfast, lunch, and dinner if you want mm-hmm. to. Because, you know, again, that's why we all went into ID for the community and the work-life balance, particularly in the last two, two and a half years for our profession has really suffered and we really need to kind of get back on track. Well, well now you're making me want to go to uh, a hike on uh, some of the areas near in the Bay Area. It, um, maybe I'm hoping I'm pronouncing it right. Is it Muir Woods or Muir? Yeah. Muir Woods, yeah. Woods, um, yeah. Named after John Muir, who was an early environmental activist and they're all these tall redwoods and you kind of get lost and it looks like an enchanted forest. So yeah, those are close by. Fantastic. And my little clock here is saying that I got five minutes and 33 seconds. So I don't want to miss an opportunity to learn a little bit about human papillomavirus because you are a real expert. So tell me what I need to know, particularly as it relates to transplant patients. Yeah. So I think um, like the other things that I've been interested in in my career, it's kind of an underdog of a topic in, in medicine in general, not to talk about, not even talking about transplant population. I think I got attracted to it initially because of the, the known impact it has on AIDS patients, HIV infected patients, um, mm-hmm. in terms of not only causing, you know, precancer lesions, but certainly causing, uh, anal cancer, cervical mm-hmm. cancer and deaths in these populations. So that's how I started. And of course, as I did more and more transplant ID, I kind of moved that paradigm to the transplant population. And then I was astonished to, to learn that, you know, not many studies at all, but very, very similar, you know, risk of mortality when you look at incidents per 100,000, similar to HIV, particularly in the, you know, the HIV transplant population. Mm-hmm. We also know that in cervical cancer, that's also the transplant population is also a population where they have much higher than the general population rates. There are two things going on here. One is, of course, the immunosuppressed host is less likely to have immunosurveillance. So these uh, infections that sort of reside at the basal cell layer, they kind of come back to life like walking dead uh, once you have immunosuppression. And that can then over time lead to in an accelerated way to dysplasia and, and cancer. But the other aspect is just, you know, we're putting out so much fire all the time in transplant ID and in transplant. You kind of sometimes forget about, you know, these screening things that we take for granted yeah. in yeah. the population, even cervical cancer screening and pap smears for women who have received or people with services who have received a transplant is very, very disappointing compared to the general population. And that's because people Forget after time, if you had a patient who's had multiple inpatient visits, and that's probably like one of the last things you might want to think about. But it's super important, particularly as our transplant population is living longer. So my, you know, next step was really getting involved in transplant and HIV transplant and, and really trying to understand just some of the basic stuff and then try to bring the infrastructure from, from HIV into you know, screening HPV-associated diseases in, in transplant patients. And of course, 
many of the folks in our community too have looked at uh, like Dipali in terms of immune response after the regular HPV vaccine. But immunizations are also a key part of, of prevention if possible before the transplant, particularly the younger the, the patient is with HPV. So I love HPV. It's been kind of like my rock uh, throughout mm-hmm. the years. And yeah, it, it kind of followed me along. But maybe a little less time to do that now, given the other things that I'm doing. But but still really important in, in moving that conversation forward in our field. Fantastic. So we're just about to wrap up. Great conversation with Dr. Hong, Peter Chin Hong, UCSF. He has done a ton of different things, all of them at a very high level, associate dean for regional campuses. And I was going to say one of the up and coming, but you're already there, but you're still so young. So I think before all is said and done, you're probably going to have much more uh, responsibility over all of us probably. And uh, one day, hopefully, I can find out what this Carl Sagan Prize for Science Popularization <laughs> means. It sounds great. It just means that, you know, I like to talk to people. And, you know, it really started off in, you know, as with Brian Schwartz, we, we teach a lot of medical students in infectious disease and during COVID and MPOX and RRSV. Speaking to the community is what a lot of us in ID had to do. And... It was just some recognition about that, but it's just kind of, I feel kind of guilty getting uh, recognized for something that I enjoy so much. Awesome. Terrific. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, man. Bye-bye.